Hello, I'm Fred Stella, President of Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. So every few years, all of us who are religion nerds get really excited when we hear that the latest Pew Research survey on faith in America comes out. That paints the most current landscape and helps us understand how populations are drawn toward or away from communities. Well, a new one is out, and I wanted to speak to someone who might have some insight on the numbers and trends. Well, I asked and I received. The website Religion News Service is a great piece by Reverend Wes Granberg-Michelson. As soon as I read it, I realized I wanted him on the show here. But it wasn't until I started seeking him out online that I found he has a significant West Michigan connection. And after trading a few emails, it turns out he also authored a couple of books that I think are worthy of some conversation. So a little bit about Reverend Wesley Granberg-Michelson. He is a global ecumenical leader whose work has highlighted the intersection of faith with public life. He was a legislative assistant to Senator Mark Hatfield, director of Church and Society for the World Council of Churches, and served for 17 years as general secretary of the Reformed Church in America. He chairs the board of Sojourners, an advocacy ministry linking faith and social justice, He also serves on the boards of Church Innovations Institute and Global Christian Forum. His books include How Change Comes to Your Church, Future Faith, and the book we'll be discussing today, Without Oars. So we welcome to Common Threads, Reverend Wes Granberg-Michelson. Hello, Wes. Hey, Fred. Really good to hear you. Thanks very much for your generous invitation. My my pleasure. Uh, So... As I mentioned just a second ago, the the main purpose of me contacting you and having you on as a guest was the survey, but then you sent me this uh, wonderful book, Without Oars, and so I'm thinking, you know, we might uh, talk about the survey first, but then again, you could bring up something that Without Oars uh, has meaning for, and so if we end up going back and forth, you know, nobody's going to dock our pay. That's the good news. So, so why don't we do that? Let's let's talk about the survey uh, up front, for at least right now. And uh, uh, tell me, is the Pew survey something that you uh, always look forward to, as I do, and uh, always try to uh, make sense of? Yes, I do, Fred. And I try to pay attention to the numbers. Um, you know, I I served for, uh, as you said, seventeen years as General Secretary of the Reformed Church in America, and of course, that's when I spent a lot of time living in Grand Rapids, and um, I I had to really familiarize myself with the larger ocean in which the congregations of the RCA were swimming, and what were the overall trends that we, you know, that we would be affected by and had to be alert to. And for that reason, I gave a lot of attention to... uh, to the work of, uh, of, of the Pew Institute, uh, their fine research, also the stuff that would come out from Gallup and from other places, uh, to try not just to talk about hopes, but to talk about actual data and to, and to see what it was that uh, congregations in the United States are, are faced with today. So when you were uh, the general secretary, uh, is that anything like Pope? <laughs> well, 
mean, mean is it, it the closest we thing? Is it the closest thing? Yeah, it would be if we weren't Protestants, you know. <laughs> uh, I like to tell people that uh, uh, being a general secretary, uh, first, the name was really good because half the church wants me to be a general and half the church wants me to be a secretary, <laughs> and they can't make up their mind. Um, and the second thing is that uh, it's just like it's just like being a bishop or an archbishop, except you don't get the hat, you don't get the frills, you just get the work. Oh, geez, they don't give you a hat. <laughs> <laughs> well, God bless you. You know, but it's part. You know, the reform tradition, as you know, Fred. Uh, we we kind of rejected the notion of uh, bishops and of hierarchy. Uh, so. A lot of our bishops are, uh, you know, exercise their own role informally rather than through some position or title they have. Sure, I understand that. Can we flesh out these numbers more to make better sense of things in this in this current uh, survey? You say we have three hundred fifty thousand Christian congregations in the country, and ninety yeah. percent have a profile older than the current population. If you were general secretary right now, what would that say to you? And and yeah, what would be your response uh, and your concern? Yeah, well, this is I think one of the more important uh, pieces of data that I've come across in my in my work and my writing. Um, you know, you look at the U.S. population and you say, well, how many people are between the ages of eighteen and about thirty? And you come up with, uh, it's somewhere around 18, 20%. When the new census data comes out, uh, we'll have that, you know, up to date and precise. But then you say, well, how many congregations reflect that same demographic picture? And it turns out there's only one in 10. So it means nine out of 10 congregations today have, um, have, have an age uh, span on average, that's older than the population itself. So right away, you know that uh, we're facing these demographic headwinds. Uh, you know, people have all they have all kinds of reasons of well, why are why are numbers declining? You know, why are there less people in church today uh, than there were ten years ago or twenty years ago? And that's one of the main findings that you know made a lot of headlines when it came out last month. Less than half um, of Americans now are actively involved as members of a, of a congregation or a house of worship. Well, well, one reason is simply because people are dying, and because the average age of our congregations is older, and so congregations aren't being replaced at the same rate in which people are are are, are being lost from from their membership. Uh, now there are other factors as well that we can go into, but but you start by saying. We're facing these demographic headwinds, and and that means you have to ask these deeper questions. Uh, why is it that those who are uh, of a younger generation uh, have less interest in, uh, in in being part of a church today? And exactly how does that break down? Uh, how does that break down across race, which is something that we often don't look at? Um, and and where 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 are the places where religious interest or spiritual curiosity is being expressed by those people? And, and what might the church do in response? Um, so those are some of the questions that I would ask uh, 
today. Uh, some of the same questions we did ask when I was serving in that role, but I think which any any denomination has to ask today, including the Reformed Church in America. There are some congregations I know, particularly the megachurches, non-denominational, and it, it seems as if they look at these surveys the same way Madison Avenue might look at a survey uh, it, it, when if they're marketing a product. It could be soap, uh, anything. And then they attempt to turn their church community into what they believe will match the demographics. And so, uh, for instance, as I'm sure you know, a lot of uh, these newer congregations, they they seem like the anti-church. I'm not speaking theologically, mm-hmm. but, in, but in terms of their presentation, rock and roll music, a coffee bar, yep. and, and all of that. And so they try to mold to that. And, the, and then there are other uh, congregations, I would say most, certainly mainline, uh, they, they choose not to change all that much. So is there a balance that you can see that some people are taking to make it more, say, family-friendly, youth-friendly, at the same time, not turning it into a you know a, a, a disco club. <laughs> yeah, I mean those are those are uh, tensions and questions that practically every congregation is facing in one way or another. But I think, Fred, that they often don't get to the heart of the matter. Um, there are two ways that people think. Uh, you know, people who study congregations or who have responsibility for trying to help organize them or lead them uh, as a whole, um, two ways in which congregations can be classified. Uh, the one is to say congregations have, a, have an attractional model, an attractional model. In other words, what they want to do is exactly what you've said. They want to attract as many people in as they can. And so they'll do whatever they need to. They'll change the music. They'll change the lighting. They'll get best video. They'll they'll get the, you know, hippest music. Um, they'll yeah. They'll put in those coffee bars. They'll uh, they'll do whatever they think might work. And the bigger the church, the more um, you know, the, the more options they have. They'll form every kind of special interest group they could dream of in order to, you know, in order to have something for people to get engaged with. Um, and 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 that's been popular amongst many of the kinds of churches and some of those you described. Uh, but, you know, there's a critique about that, and there's another way as well. Uh, the critique is, well, you could bring people in for a good show, but is that really what it's all about? And uh, what are you really doing to... Um, instill a depth of discipleship in such people. And is the whole point just to get people in the door? The other model I, I would call, and others uh, classify, as a missional model. And that's where a congregation says, look, what we exist for is what happens to people when they walk out of the door of our church and leave the service and go into the world. It's how we make an impact in society. And, uh, and, and we've got to remember uh, that it's not that the church has God's mission, but that God has a mission and happens to have a church. 
In other words, it's our responsibility to figure out how we make an impact in a society around us. Um, and that is what will finally draw people to the church. And when you look at the younger population that people talk about so much, you know, they talk about the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, um, meaning those who, when you do a survey and you say, um, what organized religion are you a part of? They reply, none. And that number has risen uh, amongst millennials and is getting a lot of attention. It's you know now up to upwards of 30, 35% of, of younger people. Um, but, when you, but when you say to those same people, uh, so you just don't go to church because you don't believe in God? You say, no. Only 23% of them say they don't believe in God. And many of them have a lot of spiritual curiosity. But what they want to see is not what the church says or not the show that it puts on. They want to see what people who are in the church do when they're in society. They want to see a church that has some integrity in, in, in doing what it says it believes. And churches that organize themselves that way around what I call a missional model, I think in the long run they have a far better chance of attracting those who feel disaffected. And and in the last four years of politics in our country has, in fact, accentuated that more. People, uh, especially a younger generation, they're tired of hearing what a church says. They want to see what a church does, and they want to see whether it its actions can match up to its words. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU. My name is Fred Stella, and with me today is Reverend Wes Granberg-Michelson. He is former General Secretary for the Reformed Church in America, and at the moment we're discussing the Pew Survey on Religious Life in America. Now, you mentioned that uh, there is something like, what was that number you gave? Uh, like 10% of the congregations in the country reflect the the population age profile? Is, is, is that correct? Yes, that's right, Fred. Okay. Do you know who those people are? And, and do they, uh, is what they're doing a reflection of what you just offered as a, success, a successful congregation? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's probably varied. And, I don't know if there's been a lot of the careful study of uh, uh, you know churches that have a different demographic profile, as I've said. Uh, but I would I, I would say that at least uh, anecdotally, uh, those churches that uh, have a younger profile, you know, they're they're not simply churches that. Uh, you know, I have 55-year-olds playing rock music, uh, even though their music style is, is likely to be different, likely to be a little less traditional. But I think they are churches that have opportunities for engagement in the, in the society as, at large. They're, they're churches that are offering opportunities for uh, people to be involved in a kind of uh, outward ministry that seems to make a difference around people's needs. Uh, churches that offer opportunities for um, 
exposure trips to different parts of the world that in, engages uh, people in, in realities of, uh, of need and of suffering. Uh, churches that uh, offer the opportunity for people to uh, show and demonstrate uh, a, a, a commitment to love one's neighbor, rather than churches that focus first on uh, trying to get one to one to you know agree to the popular to, to the proper set of beliefs. So I, I I think in general churches that are able to attract a younger generation are churches that have more of those opportunities. Uh, you mentioned the past four years and the challenges that we as a, a country uh, experienced. I'm wondering if, and you would probably have to read between the lines in the survey to, to flesh this out, but I'm assuming you might have that capability. I certainly wouldn't. Do we know if the Trump experience fortified uh, evangelicals? Now, I know, and by that, uh, I don't mean... F- Individually, because I'm sure a lot of evangelicals who are uh, very far to the uh, to the right from the center, I'm sure they personally feel fortified. But in terms of fortifying the population, do, do we know if people actually came into the evangelical movement because of Trump and his allies, uh, particularly those those evangelical ministers that he placed in positions uh, connected to power? Well, I think you saw a couple things going on, Fred, and there's been an awful lot of attention, and we're just beginning to get some of the research around the facts here. Um, first of all, uh, it's clear that uh, a, a wide, high percentage of white evangelicals, and I want to underscore white evangelicals, were supporters of President Trump. Um now, that number, from what most of the polling data shows, was slightly less than it was four years ago, but remained in that high range of around, uh, in the high 70% up to about 80%, although it looks like there was some decrease. At the same time, it's also clear that there has been an exodus of some who would call themselves evangelical, but because of their aversion to the to the um, you know to the to the mingling of Trump's policies and and uh, Christian beliefs, uh, their rejection of that meant that they they stepped away from that identification. And here's the interesting thing: the term evangelical used to be defined theologically. You know, evangelicals believed in certain things theologically. But what's happened more recently is that the term is defined more socially and culturally. And so when a person says they're evangelical, it, it, it has more to do with where their political and cultural attitudes are rather than in their beliefs. And when those people then leave uh, in a church that finds itself as evangelical, they then no longer call themselves evangelical. So that 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 means it's even more difficult for um, researchers to figure all this out. 
but there is one other interesting statistic that also came to light just in the past uh, few months, and that is that mainline denominations uh, over the past uh, couple of years actually increased from about 10.2 percent to 10.6 percent of the Christian community. Yeah, I saw um, that. I saw that and was was quite uh, interested in it. Uh, yeah, what is your take on that? Well, it, you know, people, we're still trying to figure that out, but it's a it's a definite uptick compared to the general decline over many years. Uh, we'll probably we'll need to have more data to to form uh, really clear conclusions, but the general sense is that it probably reflects people who are walking away from a more, uh, you know, from a more right-wing evangelical identification, wanting to remain Christian and finding themselves more comfortable in, in, a, in what we, you know, typically have called a mainline uh, congregation. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's, it's going to be a trend well worth watching. We also have some statistics that show that in certain areas, and West Michigan, frankly, is one of them, uh, where where uh, the percentage of those who typically voted Republican uh, amongst the Christian community, you, you saw a shift away of a, it, it may only be two or three or four percent, but a shift away during this past election, uh, which represented those who who were not wanting to go along with uh, a strong identification with Donald Trump. Um, so I, I think the evangelical community as a whole is in great flux. I, I frankly think it has terrific problems today within the U.S. Its brand has been really uh, associated strongly with one particular political uh, expression, and that's causing problems. It's particularly causing problems amongst those who are younger. And, um, and it's going to be a challenge to see where that goes in the future. And then, of course, you have people like your, uh, your colleague Jim Wallace who identify as evangelicals, but, and they're pounding the table saying, hey, it, it isn't a sociopolitical uh, label. It is a theological label, and yes, you can be moderate and even liberal and be an evangelical. It's been a, I mean, that's been a long voice. Uh, you mentioned that I began working for um, Senator Mark Hatfield at the beginning of my career before I went into the ministry. He was an evangelical, and he was called a liberal Republican. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure whether he would fit either of those categories today. Liberal Republicans barely exist. Uh, but there's been there's been a long tradition of other voices in the evangelical community. They've been minority voices. You know, they haven't been in the majority by any means, but they've been saying exactly what you've suggested, uh, Fred. And the other thing is that uh, what we often don't realize, when you look at this question through the lens of race, you see something very differently. When you look at African Americans or Latinx who classify themselves as evangelical, you often will find a different stance on social and political issues. And so it is, 
more the case that you're talking about white evangelicals when you are referring to those who seem to have a strong affinity for the kinds of policies and uh, and, and view that uh, President Trump espoused. You say you don't know if liberal Republicans exist. I can tell you here in West Michigan, we have one um, on display at the Public Museum right next to the Tyrannosaurus Rex bones. So <laughs> we just have a, a couple of minutes left. Uh, Wes, if you can answer this very quickly um, about the, the Catholic population. Uh, yeah. What do we know about the sex abuse scandal and the number of Catholics leaving? I know many angry Catholics, uh, rightfully so, because of this. But I honestly don't know if I am aware of any who, who left because of that. But it, does the survey actually indicate that Catholics have left specifically because of that? No, the survey doesn't go into that much, but other data does. And I have analyzed and written about that. Um, when you look at uh, when you look at the Catholic Church, the thing uh, the thing to remember is that uh, Catholicism in the United States is being sustained by immigration. Um, the number of Catholics who are who are uh, Hispanic continues to increase. Uh, when you look at Catholic millennials, okay, again we talk about that younger age group. You look at Catholic millennials, 52% of them are Hispanic, or we could say Latinx. And this shows the trajectory of, of Catholicism in the United States. If it weren't for immigration and weren't for the presence of, of uh, Hispanic believers in, in the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church would be in utter freefall. There are many who are leaving the Catholic Church, as you say, over the issue of the sex abuse scandal. Then, um, excuse me, I'm sorry. The, but the, yeah. Oh, okay, finish your thought, then we'll have to... But, but the up. general population, uh, you know, Catholicism is about 23% of the U.S. population, and that's generally steady. So you've got those leaving, but you have others coming into the, to the Catholic uh, faith. I'm, I'm glad you did finish that statement. Thank you. Wes, we are uh, down to the wire for this episode, but uh, there's so much more to talk about. And yes, next week we will get to your book, which I appreciated very much. So, Wes, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Fred. I've appreciated it and enjoyed it. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Reverend Wes Granberg-Michelson, and we will continue our conversation with him next week right here on WGVU.